0: Okay, well, we're going to pick up a conversation about understanding from a biblical counseling perspective. Remember, that's what these, all, all these conversations go back to is. From a biblical counseling perspective, how do we want to understand divorce and remarriage? That's what we're looking at right now, divorce and remarriage. So you think about it, marriage, divorce, and remarriage in our society, haven't these words become incredibly trivial? They're part of a game. You know, if it helps you to beat taxes or get more money from the government man and funding, you just pick the one that you like best, and that's what you do. Uh, You have heard, as well as I have, of believers in the church divorcing for tax benefits. You've heard of this, I'm sure. True definitions and understandings of these terms have long been abandoned by our secular culture, but we know better. We know God's word. We know that it's true. That it's good that His Word is right, and His Word is holy and sure. And we know what works best, both now, in the temporal, earthbound sense, and for all of eternity. We know what works best. His Word declares it to us. And what works is this, making choices that understand the glory of God, making choices that honor God and exalt Christ. Maybe what gets challenging for us is when we get conflicted in our goals. We can get conflicted in our goals relatively quickly. It's always a possibility that you can set your sights below God's righteous standard. And then we start to pursue these low-grade goals, these low-grade ideals, and then life starts to hurt, and we wonder, how can I fix it? Consider the goals and, and righteousness from the following scenario. I just want to paint a picture for you. We'll start out with a little scenario. Let me introduce you to Betty. Betty. Betty comes to you for counseling because she's having a problem with her unsaved husband. When they were married 10 years ago, neither of them were Christians. But five years ago, Betty became a Christian through the witness of a friend of hers. And she then began attending church regularly, Bible studies, joining the church, and listening to God's word being preached faithfully. Up to this point, her husband has rejected all of her efforts to share the gospel with him, He will not attend the church where she's at. He doesn't want her to pray at mealtimes. He refuses to read any book that he will give her. He thinks that the money she gives to the church is a waste. And at times, he seems to delight in mocking her Christian faith. Recently, she says this. She says, things have been going from bad to worse. I'm desperate. I don't know what I'm going to do. He has forbidden me to attend church. He wants me to stay home and take care of him all the time. Instead of getting involved in the church in the way a Christian should, he doesn't like me talking to my Christian friends on the telephone. He doesn't like me going to other men for advice. He just won't listen to reason. I'm afraid he's going to be a bad influence on our two children. It's so hard to raise the children for God without his help. And then this she says, I want to be a good Christian. I also want to have a good marriage. I just don't know how I can please God and my husband. I just don't know what to do. Sound like an all too familiar scenario? Okay. Well, let's, let's take a look at this. What's the first thing that you notice about that last portion when she, she makes her two goals very clear to us? She says, I want to be a good Christian and I want to have a good marriage. Right? But we're going to run into conflict right? because husband doesn't want these things to happen. And as you think through that scenario with him being so obstinate, and opposed to Christianity, what goes through your mind? Acts 5.29, right? Where Peter says that we must rather obey God than men. And so you have that in your mind, and then you have the other idea where we have Ephesians 5.22 sitting in our face, and we think, wives, submit to your husbands. But this guy is heavy-handed, and he's unreasonable. He does not meet even a secular standard of what a husband should be doing in the home. If she denies his request, what's going to happen? If she denies his request, what's going to happen? If she goes to the church, if she tithes money, if she asks to see a counselor, is it, is it, um, is it a bad thing for her to do what her husband doesn't say if she's to choose to go to church? Is that, is that wrong or right? It would be right. We, we would agree with her that you, you should go to church. So she's got an opportunity to choose to do what God wants rather than what men want. If she denies his request, what's going to happen is this. Either he's going to go silent and he's going to kind of accept this idea, but ultimately he might just abandon her in the relationship, just abandon her. Well, there's a consequence for that. The other idea is that he might just turn to abuse. And physically assault her, well, does society uh, go with that at all? What does society think about that that 's lower than their standard, right? and so does she then have the resolve to do what she needs to do next, which is if you 're in an abusive relationship, what do you do? You call for help right and can the chur- is the church in the business of stepping in when there 's abuse in the home, physical abuse in the home is the chur- am I, is my job to leave my office and to go physically separate two people? who are fighting with each other in the home. Is that my job? Is that what you pay me for? No, that's what that guy's paid for. <laughs> we call him the sheriff, right? So the authorities would necessarily take care of him and he would go to jail. So there's there's ways that this can be worked out and ironed out if we follow God's standard. But if he ends up in jail or if there's abandonment, would she meet her first goal? If he's in jail or she, or, or he's abandoning her, would she meet her second goal? Which goal of the two goals that she stated, I want to be a good Christian and I want to have a good marriage, which goal is the one that we need to pursue? First one. It's the only one that we can, right? And so then the question is for Betty, is this okay? Is this okay that we head you down a path to know what God's standard is and to pursue his standards in all instances of your life? Would this be valuable and beneficial to you? Is there a blessing and a benefit that comes from this? I got to tell you, inside the church, that's where her best blessings and benefits are going to come from. There's a network of support. There are men who have wisdom. We can sort out the differences that you have in your relationships. We know God's pattern and plan. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. What is God's pattern and plan? All the Bettys of the world and all of us have great reason to return to understanding the righteousness of God. And we can do that even when talking about divorce by looking at three dynamics before divorce. That's what we're going to talk about now. Three dynamics before divorce. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Malachi 2, Malachi chapter 2. We'll look at verses 13 to 16. Three dynamics before divorce. Does anyone need a handout? Does anyone not have one? There's there's a stack in the back. If you need one, I've got them up here in the front, but right there in that last uh, corner chair is, is some more handouts if you need them. So Malachi chapter 2. We're going to see two important points from this passage. The first is that God calls the union between husbands and wives, he calls it a covenant. And the second is that God declares, I hate divorce. And this is important because the number one dynamic before divorce is that we understand the covenant. That we understand the covenant. And that's why we're turning to Malachi chapter 2 so that we understand the covenant. In this passage, God is angry with Israel and Judah, in particularly the priests. They were leading the people astray from the way of the Lord, and then they would cover the altar with their tears and plead to God because God was no longer regarding their offerings. And so the priests would say, in verse 14, you can read this, the priests would say, for what reason are you not answering us? And the Lord resoundingly answers them. And he says this, Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she, is a, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit that no one deals treacherously against the wife of your youth. And then in verse 16, God so clearly says, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. These men, they wanted the favor of God, but they're treating their wives treacherously. And God says, you want favor from me? Yet you dishonor the covenants that you make before me. You dishonor the one flesh union that I established. You deal treacherously with your wives to the extent that they even want divorce or that you think divorce would be the next step. And then God goes so far and he makes it very plain and clear. I hate divorce. That's God's standard. So when we're thinking about covenants and how God feels about covenants, It's so necessary to lay down the foundation. God hates divorce because of how much God loves covenants. So, the first dynamic you need to look at when considering divorce is the covenant. We need to ask the question do you have a covenant? Do you know how much God loves covenants? Do you know God's hatred of divorce? Then we consider Jeremiah 31. You can turn there in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. I want to continue to show you that God loves covenants. You see this. You see God covenanting with Adam. You see him making a Noahic covenant. And these, there's certainly the big three in Genesis, chapters 12, 15, and 17, the Abrahamic covenant. And in Exodus, you go and see the Mosaic covenant. You turn to 2 Samuel 7, and you see God's covenant with David. But here in Jeremiah 31, we see God promising a new covenant. And as we read, consider the reason why God needed a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 32. Here we are, Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the days I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. God considers himself a husband to Israel and Judah, and he long endured all of their harlotry against him. He watched as they chased after the gods of nations, false gods, and worshipped them, sacrificing to them this total abomination. God says that they broke the covenant that he established. Yet, in an incredible display of grace and mercy, God says through, I, through Jeremiah, he's going to establish a new covenant with these same two adulterous wives, Israel and Judah. Whether covenant between God and man or covenant between man and woman, covenants, we need to understand this, covenants are promises. Covenants unite And covenants are not to be broken. Consider what Jesus says about the marriage covenant in Matthew 19. We could turn there as well to Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees were seeking to challenge Jesus, to trap him. And in this instance, they make the topic divorce. And they want answers. I want you to consider how Jesus turns the conversation to Scripture, to the Word of God. And I want you to consider Jesus' understanding Of the longevity of marriage. So, read with me the text from Matthew 19 and look at verses 3 through 6. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? and said for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh what therefore god has joined together let no man separate jesus quotes here from genesis 2:24 he's pointing back to the beginning to creation to god's original design And God was well pleased in the creation of woman for the man. And in so doing, to create their union, their covenant union, a union that becomes literally a one flesh union. And God says of this union, this level of intimacy and relationship is never to be broken. That's how God feels about covenants. They're not to be broken. And he calls this relationship, this intimacy, this union, he calls it a covenant union. Relationship. So when we're thinking about divorce and what we need to look at before divorce, the dynamics of divorce, the covenant comes first. The, the, this point of the covenant and the one flesh union is not lost on Paul. In 1 Corinthians 6, 15 and 17, consider how Paul contrasts the one flesh union of men and women with the believer's union with God himself. He says this, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Okay, that's an incredible parallel. If you're following that verse out of 1 Corinthians 6, He's talking about a one-flesh union between a man and a woman, and then he's talking about our spiritual union with God and our, our, un, our, our one-spirit union with God. That's pretty powerful. You know, to God, sexual union matters. Physical union matters. And clearly, spiritual union matters. And there's a clear sense that all unions have a deep spiritual component, which is why God uses the term covenant. Covenant is his term. It shows, it is how he ties himself off to humanity by making covenants with humanity. Covenant has great significance to God, even profound significance to God. And this is why before considering divorce, we must look at covenant, promises of God. As such, the covenant is tied to salvation issues, basic truths, and basic trust issues with God. The covenant must be held in honor because it is the word of God. Because God's word comes to us in covenants. Because of the character of God is bound up in making covenants. As a result, where a covenant has been established, it is not to be easily discarded. That might be the case for our secular society, but for biblical Christianity, it is not the case. We we don't go for the easily discarding of covenants. Covenants are to be kept intact, Doing so honors God, and get this, it proves that we trust God when we honor covenants that we make with our mouths. Further, keeping covenants intact requires the presence and the help of God, does it not? It absolutely does. It requires this supernatural work from the Holy Spirit, right? There's something special about that. So we we would look necessarily to exhaust every biblical avenue that we have in order to sustain marital bonds, covenants, one-flesh unions. Clearly, if we're going to look at exhausting every biblical avenue before we head toward divorce, we can only do this in a marriage that has believers. There must be a confession of Jesus Christ, which is dynamic number two of the three dynamics before divorce is that we have a confession of Christ By the way, what do you call exhausting every biblical avenue in a non-believer's marriage? If I'm to sit down with a couple of non-believers and talk with them about their marriage. If I'm to exhaust every biblical avenue, we call that evangelism, don't we? (laughs) We call it evangelism. All the biblical principles of marriage totally apply to them. So I know that if I sit down with a a couple of non-believers in my office that we we can talk about things that really will matter and benefit and bless them. I mean, who doesn't need to improve communication in a relationship or understand anger or conflict resolution? We can talk about those things. But without conversion, it is only the grace of God that would sustain that marriage. So, number two, the confession of Christ. So we look at the next part of that Matthew 19 passage, if you're still there in Matthew 19. And here we see the reasoning for divorce. It came from the Pharisees who stayed on the attack with Jesus and they asked him a second question trying to trap him yet again. But Jesus points out the root of the problem. He digs down and he pulls up the root. It's a nasty root ball he pulls up here. The root that made divorce even an option. So here we are in Matthew 19 verse 7 and it says this. So the Pharisees, they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Christ said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. What was the root of the divorce problem? Hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. This is the issue that made divorce an option from the beginning. Jesus says it was not this way from the beginning. God never designed marriages to ever be void, to to ever disappear and go away. But your hardness of heart, uh, you think about that. How how hard is the human heart? How wicked? How deceived? How selfish? How evil? Enough to destroy a marriage? Almost certainly. Worse yet, even enough to be permanently and eternally separated from God. But God gave a fix for this wicked condition of men, and you can see that in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, when God did not leave men in their desperate state, but he came to us in our hardness of hearts, he afforded us the opportunity for a right relationship with him. And by his grace, he comes to men, and he performs this supernatural heart surgery that you see in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, when he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and I will make you clean and I will cleanse you from all your idols and moreover, I will put a new heart within you and your heart of stone I will remove and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will give you my spirit who will cause you to walk in my ways and keep my commandments and you will carefully observe all of my ordinances. This is a powerful transaction, a supernatural heart surgery that God performs. This is regeneration, this is new birth. This is a new creation made after the image and likeness of Christ and given fullness of life by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And what does this heart have the ability to say? What can this heart do now that it is a heart of flesh and not stone? And now that it is a heart that it's flesh, it is a heart that's filled with the Holy Spirit. What can this heart do that the heart of stone cannot? Well, this heart can say things like Peter said. It can make this confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Or the confession of Thomas when he's talking to Jesus and puts his fingers in in the hole in Christ's palm and he says, my Lord and my God. This is the kind of confession that comes from a believer. So the question is, how does a confession of Jesus Christ impact the idea of divorce? Do you see where I'm going with this? You got the Holy Spirit inside of a heart made of flesh. Is there power in this relationship that otherwise should not, could not, would not be there? There most certainly is. Is this the power that can perfectly fix this relationship? Not necessarily. There can still be failure. But without this, you tell me what chance that marriage has. They're just holding on by the human bonds of of desire and will, which are so cheap and frail. The idea of a confession of Jesus Christ inside of a marriage is a massive confession. It is huge. A confession of Jesus Christ can only come from the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is the grace of God, which gives salvation. And it causes Paul to say to Titus that this grace is instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Divorce is a worldly idea. And divorce is an ungodly idea. It came because of the, what did it come from? It came because as a result of, it resulted out of the hardness of men's heart. This isn't an idea that originated with God. This is an idea that comes from sinful men. Except that it is pursued as a last option after the full flood of biblical patience, long-suffering, and godly counsel and wisdom have been demonstrated that it is actually necessary. God divorced Israel. Divorce, he wrote, he wrote Israel a writ of divorce. You go through a lot of patience and long-suffering and godly counsel to get to that point. It is not something that is cheap. It's not something that is easy. A confession of Jesus Christ, though, it puts one spouse in the fight for the marriage. One spouse fighting for the righteousness of God, laboring in every effort to give life to what appears most certainly dead. Through the power of the Spirit, one spouse has the ability to perform critical tasks. I'm going to give you five of them in a second. Without these critical tasks, it is impossible to keep a one-flesh union. And these are the critical tasks that this heart that's regenerated, that comes from a confession of Christ, these are the tasks that this heart can do. This heart can repent. This heart can forgive. This heart can understands communication that is reconciling. This heart understands restorative action. And this heart understands obedience to God. I'll give them to you again. Repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, communication. Communication that wants to reconcile restorative actions, and finally, obedience to God. So here's the question. How do you get past infidelity? How do you get through thoughts of sexual sin in the past? How can lengthy bouts of separation be overcome? What about neglect and full emotional withdrawal? How do you overcome this? Truly, it is only possible through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. If the Spirit does not power repentance, is it true repentance? If the Spirit does not power forgiveness, is it true forgiveness? Of course not. So the second most important dynamic to consider before divorce is, does this marriage covenant have zero, one, or two confessions of Christ? Without Christ... You can learn marriage principles, but as mentioned before, what that marriage needs is evangelism if the answer to the question with confessions of Christ is zero. We're going to go toward evangelism. If we've got one or two, we're headed toward full-fledged biblical counseling, right? Next, we need to consider the third dynamic before divorce. And the third dynamic before divorce is contentment to stay contentment to stay, number three in your notes. You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7. Some of you are saying, why didn't you start there in 1 Corinthians 7? Come on, Oliver, give us the good stuff. Okay, we're there. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians 7. While you do that, let's review for a second. Before you ever allow anyone to consider a divorce, first, you have to establish the primacy of the covenant, right? You want to talk about the Exalted view that we must have of the covenant. If they have one, they better keep it. It's best to keep the covenant you have. Second, we want to know, does anyone in, the, in this marriage covenant confess Jesus Christ as Lord? If so, you actually have traction to move forward. If not, you have no traction. And you'd be like a Toyota Prius stuck down there in the sand dunes, spinning its tire at 3 a.m. at night. And what's going to happen to the tires? You're going to burn the tread up, and then pretty soon you're going to burn that little battery to shreds, right? <laughs> That's what a failed marriage is going to look like with no, no believers. But with a believer, I've got traction. I can go somewhere. And what we're going to read now is further proof why having a covenant and having a believer are substantial. Because then we have the patience to ask the non-believing spouse a very special and important question. And the question is this, from the believing spouse to the non-believing spouse, the question is this, is it your desire to stay? Are you content to be in this marriage? That's what we get the opportunity to ask. Read with me from 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 10. But to the married I give instruction, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But I say to the rest, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband... And he consents to live with her. She must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean. But now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Verse 17. Only as the Lord has assigned each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches... Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. That last point becomes an important part of understanding divorce prior to salvation. We'll get to that point in a bit. But this presents us with the third dynamic before divorce. The third dynamic before divorce. We need to ask the spouse, are you content to stay married? Are you content to stay married? Okay, so then we move into this. They say yes. Yes, I'm content to stay married. Great. You're content to stay married. Fantastic. That's what we want to. Because that's the route to the most glory for God, right? That's the route, to keep the covenant. Well, in the midst of that, we're going to insert biblical stipulations. In order for there to be a marriage here, we have three demands. And for the biblical spouse, these are non-negotiables. Follow along with me. I'm trying to protect the spouse here that's a Christian that is going to deal with an unbelieving spouse who says, yeah, I'll stay. I, I, want to, I want to help this brother and sister out. Biblical stipulations, three demands, non-negotiables. So these are three demands for the contended spouse who wants to stay. Number one, demand for you, spouse that wants to stay. Number one, we demand cohabitation. We demand cohabitation. You must live together. It is not a marriage if you say, yes, I want to be married, but you move to the East Coast. There must be a shared residence. You must be in physical proximity daily. And there are great reasons for this, and you can understand this. There's accountability. There's responsibility. There's stewardship duties. Other points of contact are created, which create discussion and dialogue and further establish desire, and intent to be reconciled, to restore the relationship. So we want cohabitation. That's number one. Number two, we don't really think we're being too far-fetched with this, really. This seems pretty straightforward. Number two is going to even seem more straightforward. We demand, number two, we demand monogamy. We demand monogamy. Again, you cannot say, yes, I want to stay married, but choose to engage sexually with a person outside your marriage. The stubborn spouse may try to go celibate for a long time in bitterness and anger. They might try the other game, right, where they say, well, I'm just not going to have sex with anybody then, and tuck themselves off into a corner. And that will have its own consequences and ramifications as well. And when time has passed... And those consequences come forward. We can deal with them. But right out of the gate, sexual relations are to be in the marriage alone. So that's number two, right? So we got cohabitation and we got monogamy. Number three, third demand. We demand basic responsibilities be maintained. Basic responsibilities. Put your clothes on in the morning. Wash yourself at least weekly. Just basic stuff, right? You can't say to me, yes, I want to stay in the marriage and be a slug. The contented spouse cannot be a slug. They cannot merely exist. There is not an option to say, yes, I want to be married, and then throw in the towel regarding all the basic responsibilities that attend every person's life. Failure here is called, what, what would you call? What would you call failure in this instance? Failure to do basic stuff. Well, ultimately, over the long run in a marriage, it's called abandonment. If they're unwilling to do the basic stuff, it's called abandonment, particularly when they have the ability. To, if you have a spouse that doesn't have the physical ability to, to do things, are, are you obligated to stay and to weather that storm? If you've got a spouse with dementia, absolutely. I'm talking about the able-bodied person who's being absolutely stubborn. Don't get me wrong with that. The abandonment is, is an action, right? Their words said one thing, but abandonment, in this instance, not doing the basics, is an action which speaks truth that is in opposition of the words that came out of their mouth. To the words that say, yes, I want to be married, abandonment says, no, I don't want to be married. These three demands we would place on the spouse who is content to stay. And and here is why we would place these demands. Because without these demands, we run into what I call the impossible situation. Anybody ever seen this one? The impossible situation. I'm going to run you through a little scenario. I've seen this. It was a nightmare. I had a friend in a growth group who was a literal shepherd. He literally had heads of sheep that he ran. He's a good friend of mine. He was married to a believing wife. A believing wife. They had a son. She took off. She went 800 miles away back east. She set up camp and started a new life with her son. But she said, I want to keep the marriage. Excuse me? What are you supposed to do with that if you're my friend? How do you move forward in life when you physically have sheep on the ground that you're attending to, moving them from one location to the next And she takes off and goes 800 miles to the east. You you just want to throw your hands up and start to cry. That's your son that just left. He's a patient man. He loved his son, and he visited him two to three times a year. For four years, he engaged with the elders of the church and asked how to delicately handle this situation. This is what happens when you get the elders involved. We want to establish certain things. And these men did this. They sent letters to her. They picked up the phone and they talked with her. And her answer all indicated a, a pseudo kind of salvation, right? This Arminian choice of God type thing. But the whole obedience is also a choice. So she's playing this game. and But she still maintains to the elders that she wants to be married. And you can just imagine as she's telling the elders that she still wants to be married... Doesn't it seem a little hypocritical to say that to an elder when you actively chose to run away from your husband? She proved over time that she was unwilling to reconcile. She was unwilling to obey biblical leadership, not just the elders of a church that she didn't attend, but even the idea that you're being told by other Christians to attend a church And to submit to the leadership of that church, and you have someone over there who's 800 miles away who's unwilling to do even that. She was unwilling to truly be a one flesh union with her husband at any point in time over the course of this whole separation. The elders determined after great patience and exercise of all diligence that this was no longer a marriage. The brother was released from moral responsibility for covenant failure on her part. He was given the green light as a Christian to divorce this woman. And he was given a yellow light to proceed with caution in looking to remarry. Paul said, as we had read in 1 Corinthians 7, the brother is not under bondage. The brother is not under bondage. As much as This bitter wife tried to keep him in bondage. The elders told him he was free. The covenant was broken by her and he was not obligated in this instance. Contentment to stay is not enough. We demand cohabitation, monogamy, and basic responsibility. Failure to deliver in these three areas is abandonment. And when abandonment happens... The faithful spouse is released from moral obligation. And you see this in Jeremiah 3, 6 through 10, when God gave Israel a writ of divorce for her covenant unfaithfulness. Second, when abandonment happens, after the divorce, the faithful spouse is free to remarry, according to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 9. These are the three dynamics we looked at before divorce. Before divorce. We talked about the covenant. We talked about a confession of Jesus Christ and the power that that brings into trying circumstances. We talked about the contentment of a spouse to stay and the need to ask the question and the need to hold accountable to those three requirements. So finally, we're going to look at two requirements before remarriage. Two requirements before remarriage. And the first is certain freedom. Certain freedom. If you're going to remarry you need to have certain freedom. Well, what do I mean when I use this terminology, certain freedom? Okay, well, let's suppose that you take off from here tonight and it gets to nine o'clock and you've got that feeling inside your stomach that you need Rocky Road ice cream. So you head over to Food for Less and you're making your way through the doors, but there's a guy there with a bicycle and he says, hey, can I get you to buy this bicycle from me for 20 bucks? And you quick look at the bike says, that bike's worth about $400. And you ask yourself the question, quickly through your mind you're thinking does he have the right to sell this 400 dollar bike for 20 bucks does he have the certain freedom to make the offer to sell that bike for 20 dollars right is he the owner of the bike is he trying to perpetrate a fraud right okay this is heading down certain the road of certain freedom now imagine this scenario certain freedom imagine this you have a daughter or a sister Maybe just take daughter with me. You have a daughter. She brings home some dude. She introduces you to some dude. That's technical terminology. <laughs> we'll, we'll st- <laughs> so there's a dude. You look him over and the guy seems normal. He even makes a profession in your face that he loves Jesus Christ. Okay, okay. And then suppose they're dating for four months. And you invite him to a men's breakfast at the church. Come on over, Saturday, 8.30. You invite him to a breakfast at the the church with the men. And while sitting down, eating his burrito, one of the other men who has never met the dude before, doesn't even know that you're there with him, sits down and asks him this question. Are you married? That's a pretty straightforward question, right? What would you expect the dude to say? What would you expect him to say? It would just roll out pretty quickly, right? He's dating your daughter. Okay. So if he goes into ducking the question or politician style answering with pseudo answers to try to duck out of this very straightforward question, is that going to put a little lump in your throat about his ability, his certain freedom to be engaging in a relationship with your daughter? It should. It's such an easy question. How are you feeling about his certain freedom when he is ducking and diving at a men's breakfast? This question. This is an actual scenario that happened to me. I watched it. I watched it at a men's breakfast table. I watched the ducking in front of the father. Unbelievable. It is so important to establish certain freedom. Certain freedom. Certain freedom is the biblical freedom to be able to marry again. The biblical freedom to be able to marry again. Because not all divorcees have certain freedom. And the reason why the man was ducking and moving at the men's breakfast was because he knew that he did not have certain freedom. So what are the qualifications of certain freedom? How, how can you come by certain freedom How can it be known or be obtained? Well, the first is when divorce is secured. When divorce is secured, which happens after, for a Christian, it happens after the elders have approved, have helped to, to, sorry, after the elders have helped to prove that you were deserted or that you were abandoned. So if you want to have a real peace about moving on in life to another relationship, I really hope you can see the value of coming to the elders of your church and asking to help to establish in your own life that you have certain freedom. Or if you are in a situation where there's the possibility of desertion or the possibility of abandonment, to be able to walk down that road with a group of men who want to help you biblically understand what God values. And you can do this, and the men will help you, And you can have certain freedom when you get the green light from your brothers in Christ, the elders of your church, that say, we have watched your life. And we have watched your wife's life or your husband's life. And we have seen you interact. And we have watched this over a period of time. And based off of everything that we understand that the Bible says about the scenario, it looks so abundantly clear that you have been abandoned. And you would be turned over with the opportunity then to divorce, biblically allowed to divorce. So that's number one. That's how you would know certain freedom. Number two is when a divorce is understood to have happened before salvation, before salvation, because you should know that salvation is a line in the sand that creates a new person. This line is not to be manipulated. Elders would watch this closely. But it is certainly true that divorce in unbelief retains no obligation. So if you divorce in unbelief and then you come join the church, I'm not going to hold that to you. But if you're telling me your story and all of a sudden it becomes pretty clear that you were saved two months before you gave that woman up, I'm going to ask you some serious questions. I'm going to wonder why a saved person. Decided two months later to walk away from something when all of a sudden they were given an incredible power source and such an amazing gift of forgiveness in life and how they could walk out and abandon someone who they had never shared that with. They've never labored and given someone time with. Does that make sense? I want to have that conversation. These two scenarios provide certainty in the freedom of a believer to remarry. But then there's this one, the... Unscrambled egg scenario, the unscrambling of the egg. This happens because uh, when a believer is found to have an unbiblical divorce, the elder involvement would be necessary in sorting out the events that attended the unbiblical divorce. With genuine repentance and proof of unrepentance in the other spouse, this repentant believer would be deemed free to remarry. However, You can imagine how someone might try to protect their new interest. So elders need to operate in these scenarios with great diligence. I hope you can understand that and see that. You could be lied to. As an elder, we can be lied to. And someone can come to us with an idea, a half-truth, a partial truth about what their heart really was thinking and where things were really going. But if they really want certain freedom over the ability to remarry... They put their whole heart on the table and they say, this is where I'm at. This is what God's doing with me. This is the time frame over which it happened. And they let the Lord sort the chips out. You see the difference? You don't want to walk into a situation where you can see some young man or young woman angling, angling to get the best and, and the next relationship and, and start coveting and moving off and heading in another direction when they're really not focused on the idea that God really, really is intent on getting glory out of all of this covenant, all of these words that you said in the past, they mean something to him. And he's going to glorify himself through them. Okay, so we're trying to track down and understand certain freedom. As is so much the case in all the conversations around divorce, nothing is to be done in haste. Now, I speak quickly. I can, I can rattle off a lot of words. When it comes to divorce... Man, oh man, if I'm sitting across from anybody, there's a slow conversation. These these things take time. You want to watch and you want to feel out and you want to move with somebody through life over a considerable period of time to let all of the facts come to life. So that the thing that you said to me when we first started our conversation is actually what I see in practice and have seen three months down the line. So that you have a consistency to you. And I can see that, and I can base my biblical understanding and my recommendations, my counsel off of a pattern and a history that really is honoring Christ. Okay, so that's requirement number one for a biblical remarriage. Requirement for a remarriage is is that you you attain certain freedom. Number two, this is an easy one, and you know this all too well. Number two, what's number two? Anybody know? You got to marry a believer. We we know this one all too. Well, you got to marry a believer. This one's so easy. The the new marriage must be to a believer because we're not going to go through all the pain and trouble to establish certain freedom and watch a brother or sister get unequally yoked. Man, what pain that would be, wouldn't it? Paul says boldly and plainly, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And the answer is so clearly, none. None. So believers don't have fellowship with unbelievers. So for their joy and protection, the elders would want to obligate or show from Scripture that you are obligated to marry only a believer. Does that make sense? Do I, in and of myself, as an elder, have the ability to obligate you to anything? Do you want me to obligate you on Oliver's terms? No, you don't. But if I can show you something from Scripture, and you know that God's hand is behind it, is that important to you? And does that require your obedience? Yes, it does. It should, if you're a believer. So those are the things we have. I have some concluding thoughts, and I wanted to take you through um, another scenario, and we'll just see what we can get through here. You know, is, in, in, in some concluding thoughts, is sin easy to fix? You know, sometimes with the kids, I just have to say to the kids, I can't fix that. I, I just, I can't fix it. I can't get you a new one of those. I realized that it was broken by your brother intentionally, and I just can't fix that. And he doesn't have the money to fix it. So it's, it's just not coming back. I, we can't fix everything. You know what's funny? Did, did God choose the easy way to fix our sins? Oh, he chose the hard way, didn't he? The death of his own son. Sin is painful. It's messy. We know this. And we know when it comes to marriage, to the covenant, to intimacy, the union, the children, that fixing these things ain't easy. It's just not going to be easy. It was never intended to be easy. It's just not going to be easy. We're living in a broken world. We're going to see brokenness all over the place. Fixing what is broken requires greatness in three areas, and I'll just run these by you real quick. It requires greatness in waiting. This is on the part of the elders, greatness in waiting. They need to have meetings and phone calls and do counselings, and they have to process all the information as well as evaluate all the heart conditions that attend the circumstances, and you cannot hurry that process. So the elders will need to be found with great waiting skills. Next, you'll see... Great patience, greatness in patience, not only from the elders, but more so from the believing spouse in these situations. Failing marriages require a spouse who is willing to learn Christ in long suffering. You get that? A a spouse who's willing to learn Christ in long suffering. And the third greatness is greatness in prayer. Greatness in prayer. From all involved, including the church, what an incredible opportunity for all involved to see the hand of God fixing marriages as we talked about before is a is a it's a it's not a man-sized task task the the failure is man-made but the fix must be supernatural so all involved should regularly be joining themselves in prayer over these challenged marriages you know, I'll run this Last scenario by uh, just a couple of minutes. We'll see how this goes. It's an interesting one for you to think of, but uh, it, it revolves around marriage. It's not necessarily a divorce scenario, but it, it'll, it'll give, you, give you some thought as, as to what we've just spoken about. A couple in their 20s who both profess to be born again and have been baptized want to join our church. You discover that they have never officially been married and encourage them to do so. And their answer is the following. We've lived together for three years and believe that we are married in God's eyes because of Genesis 2. How can your ceremony make us any more married than that? What do you say to this person? <laughs> what do you say to this person? What do you recognize in, in just those two sentences? What do you recognize? Is there a, is there a hardness of heart there? Is there an arrogance or a pride there that's undue of someone who makes a profession of faith being born again? Yeah. And how is this couple wrong? If they say these kind of things, how are they wrong? Go back to number one of your notes. Do they understand covenant? Do they understand covenant? Really makes you ask the question about the next one too then, right? Is there Really? A genuine confession of faith? You see that? See how those go together? So we would want to ask those kind of questions. We would want to then advocate for them to be married. But what, would, what else would you say to them? What other kind of conversations can you have with someone who is so hard-hearted and stubborn about, their, about marriage? Oh, I hope that this conversation that we've had tonight gives you a, a different perspective on marriage or emboldens you in your perspective on marriage, that you really understand that the covenant is so precious to God. You know, this couple, they probably covenanted themselves behind closed doors, but was Genesis 2 behind closed doors or in broad daylight? Genesis 2 was in broad daylight. You know, you, you, baptism and communion are, we, we start to create patterns of behavior, Right? And baptism and, and communion, those are external demonstrations of an inward reality, aren't they? Okay, so if you're, you're, you're going to be doing communion and you've done baptism, but you're unwilling to do this other one that really matters to God? Anyway, just some in- interesting thoughts as it relates to marriage, right? To think about marriage from God's terms, that he really, really does honor and value the covenant. And when we put our eyes on covenant the way that God puts his eyes on covenant, it's at that time that we can actually see growth, health, and change in the covenants that we already have. If we see things the way that he sees things, there's always a day to move forward. Well, that's our conversation about marriage, remarriage, and divorce. If there's any questions, I'll look to take them at this time. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful for uh, this group of folks that choose to gather and know more about your word and to study your word. I pray that these conversations and uh, the time that we've spent, Lord, would just continue to have us reflect on our own understanding of covenants and how we stand before you and our honoring of them and our delighting in them and our pursuit of them. Lord, that we might bring you glory from every aspect and angle of our life. And Lord, where we struggle and where we have challenges, we know this. Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins. We can confess, repent, ask forgiveness, be restored, and obey you always. Lord, let us be found doing those things evermore as your day draws near. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, um, so your Sunday evenings are looking to change. Next week, Pastor Eric will be here on Sunday night talking about leadership and why leadership. It's a critical time.